Uh, If you have your Bibles, welcome you to turn them to uh, Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 27 this morning. Uh, And while you're doing that, I want to tell you a a story that gives us some backdrop for what Jesus' hearers in our passage today would have heard. So in the year 4 BC, King Herod, the the King Herod that tried to kill Jesus and put the the babies to death, uh, he died. Uh, and uh, I don't think it was a great loss for the people. Um, unfortunately for him uh, and the people, uh, he had a son that he gave his, uh, much of his inheritance to who he expected would take on the role of, of leader. But even though King Herod had the term king in his name, the kingdom wasn't his to pass on. Ever since Rome had come and defeated uh, the lands of of Israel and and Palestine, uh, they were a vassal kingdom, which meant their authority was only derived from Rome. Well, um, the son, uh, Archelaus, uh, he kind of just expected that he was going to get the the ruling uh, title anyways, and so he started ruling after his father died, uh, going so far once as to put 3,000 people to death in the temple. Well, he decided it was time to go to Rome to, to be finally given this title of king. And so on his, on his way, he took with him uh, kind of his entourage of people, his supporters. Uh, and, and when they got to Rome, they were surprised to find that there was a delegation. A group of Jews and Samaritans had gathered together and had gone to Rome to actually petition Caesar not to give him the throne. Well, this was a big surprise, obviously, for Archelaus. He expected that there was going to be a quick trip. I'm going to go to Rome, get the kingship, come back, and continue ruling and take my rightful place. But this delegation actually stirred up quite a bit of trouble. There's about 8,000 Jews that gathered and petitioned Caesar, and the decision went from being a quick one to quite a long one. His delay in returning uh, definitely put a damper on his victorious return. And when he did return, uh, Caesar didn't actually give him the title of, of king. He gave him a much lesser title and said, serve me, do a good job, and then maybe in the future I'll give you this, this next title. Uh, Archelaus never got that title. It never lasted very long. But this is a statement that Jesus' hearers would have known and would have been thinking about as Jesus starts this parable. See, he's walking through Jericho, which was near King Herod's winter palace, and maybe would have pointed at it. Uh, The point is, what Jesus is going to be doing in our passage today is he's trying to set the expectations for his disciples and for the world about when his kingdom is going to come what kind of king he is, and what they should be doing while they wait for the king to be sitting on a throne. So grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 19, 11. Uh, we're just going to read down to 14, and we're going to take it in some sections here. 11, verse 11 says this, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. What Jesus is doing, what we need to see is that there's this, there's this wave of support for him. You know, he's, he's coming into Jerusalem. The, the next story we see in Luke, that Luke records for us, 
is Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and people are throwing their cloaks down, and they're throwing palm branches down, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They intend to make this man king. And for good reason. For three years, this man has been a a teacher, a rabbi, traveling around, telling everybody the good news of the kingdom of God. What what is coming? And it hasn't just been that he's been talking about it. He's been teaching them as one who has authority, not like the scribes or the Pharisees, the Sadducees, not like those people. He's he's different. There's excitement. There's there's passion behind what he's doing. And, And even though this law that he's teaching us, he, he, he's expounding on it, he's making it harder, he's making it more difficult to be righteous in this kingdom, this Jesus is also full of grace and mercy and love. You know, the way he treats people is different than the rulers do. You know, he, he, he's not piling on duty and he's not piling on weight, he's giving hope and, and he's giving mercy and he's giving grace. And you see it in the way that Jesus has loved these, these people. He's gone around and people have, have brought their, their sick friends and family members. They've, they've come themselves. And, and you've seen, as you read through the Gospels, the many ways that, that this Jesus has welcomed everybody. He's healed people who are, are leprous with skin diseases, people who couldn't be with their family and their friends and the community of God. He, he's healed people who are lame and, and who, are, who are sick people who couldn't walk, who were paralyzed their whole lives, people who've been blind or deaf or mute. He has done miraculous things to bring like, fullness of life back to people. I mean, that's exciting. And so you have these crowds who are excited about this, but it's, it's more than even just what he's taught and how he's loved. He's, he's over creation, it seems. He's able to, to walk on the water and calm the wind and the waves. He's able to multiply bread and fish to feed thousands this, this Jesus is incredible, and, and it's even the supernatural. This, this man is able to cast out demons. And this, this wave of people coming to Jerusalem for the feast, for the Passover, there's this excitement already for that, but then this Jesus is coming with them. It's natural that they would expect that this coming Jesus, who's even called himself the Son of Man, a title that is messianic, that, that, that brings with it the weight of a future king. He's talked about his kingdom. I mean, wouldn't it be now? This is the time. We're all gathered. We're all ready. It, it, it's time for you, Jesus, to set up your kingdom. But Jesus says, not, not yet. You don't understand what still needs to take place. You see, there's going to be a coronation, but it's going to be through my, my suffering and through my death. He's going to be arrested and betrayed. He's going to be brought before uh, Pilate and Herod and all these people that, that, that they would lie about what he has done and who he is. That while he's in Pilate's uh, courts, he, he would be whipped and, and beaten and abused and spit on and mocked. He would be whipped to the point of almost death. And then soldiers would give him a a robe, a a scepter, and a crown of thorns and bow down to him. He's still not king. And then he'd be put up on a cross that he would carry himself onto the hill. He would die with a sign above him that says, King of the Jews. And he's still not king. Three days later, he would rise again, showing that his death 
had appeased the wrath of God, had dealt with our sins, the sin of the whole world, and that with his rising from the dead, he has defeated the power of sin, Satan, and death. And he's still not done. He will ascend to heaven where he will sit at the right hand of the Father at the throne and God the Father would put everything under his feet. He would be over all things and he still would not yet return. And you and I sitting here, obviously almost 2,000 years later, understand that there is a delayed king and that's what Jesus is trying to set up here. He's trying to set expectations. He's telling us, I'm going to be the king. And I'm not going to be like Archelaus. I'm I'm not going to be wicked and evil and put people to death just because. I'm I'm not going to beat and steal from you. I'm a good king. The the Greek words used don't just speak of noble birth, but, but noble character and actions. This Jesus who sits right now at the right hand of the throne of the Father is a righteous, good king but he's delayed in returning. But make no mistake, if we've trusted Jesus, all the promises that he's made, all the things that he has said, then we can trust that when he tells us he will return, he will return. We don't know when, but we know it's gonna happen. And and when it happens, there's there's no more opportunity for repentance or change of mind or action. It, It is just submission. Jesus speaks about his return so many times throughout the New Testament, I, I couldn't even count them. All throughout Matthew 24 and 25, he speaks about his return through parable and through clear teaching. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, in 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Thessalonians 1, in James 5, in 2 Peter 3, it goes on and on. Jesus tells us, I'm going to return. The question becomes, well, what will his servants and the citizens of this world do while he's gone? And what this passage, I think, actually teaches us, what it shows is that we have this king who's going to return. He's going to come. He's a good king. But how we respond to this king, how we'll act in his absence, is connected completely to how we view the king. It's our belief about and our relationship to him that will determine how we act now. See, this, this passage that we have describes three positions, two, two groups of people, but, but three different responses to Jesus. In, in verse 16 and 18, we're, we're going to see these two servants cry out, Lord. They've been obedient. They've been faithful. In, in verse 20 and on, we're going to see this wicked servant who, who says, He's fearful of of the Lord. And and in verse 14 and verse 27, we're going to see these people who hate the king. How we view the king is going to change the way we act now and anticipate his return. So let's look at the first response. Look at verses uh, 15 to 19 with me. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Everybody knows what a mina is, right? 
super clear. What's Amina? It's, it's simply just about 100 days pay for a laborer. So not a, a pittance, not a, a little bit of money, but definitely not some kind of some kind of amount that you would go and buy a mansion and have slaves and sit poolside waiting for the king to return. You, you, you couldn't live on this just hoping that Jesus was going to return before the money ran out, right? This, this amount of, of money was supposed to show that they, they had to do something with it. And, and this is different than the parable of the talents in Matthew, in the parable of the talents, uh, Jesus actually gives different amounts to the different servants, right? One to five, one, three, one, just got the single one, uh, based on their, on their gifting and their talents and, and what they had. In, in our passage, it's, it's different. We're not talking about somebody getting more or somebody getting less based on their abilities or skills or talents or giftings or character or anything. What Jesus does is he gives one mina to each of the servants to use. It's, it's flat across. So what is the mina supposed to mean in this passage? Well, the mina is simply this. It's referring to the gospel. The gospel, the, the good news that God saves sinners, that, that God, through Jesus on the cross, died to appease the wrath of God, that we could be made right with God. The gospel is what we have been entrusted with, these servants, which obviously means that the people that Jesus is talking to as these servants is he's speaking about the church. He's speaking about the people he has left behind to go about the mission that he's given them to do. And he's given them enough. He's given them the gospel, which is the power of God to save and transform. This is what 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25 says. For the word of the cross is folly. So the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who, uh, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the gospel, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." that the servants in our parable are the church and we have been left with the good news of what God has done to save us. It's been implanted in us, uh, given to us. And it is the power of God to change and to transform and to save and to sanctify. So the question is, what does it actually mean to be, to be faithful? Engage in business until I come. Well, what business is the gospel? I think there's actually three things that we see as, as, as Jesus talks about this kingdom and talks about what we should do throughout the Gospels. And I think it's this. We're called to declare our loyalty to Jesus in a hostile world. We're warned throughout the New Testament, especially, that we can't serve two masters. We, we can't fly two flags at the same time. Either, either we love one and we hate the other, or, or we love one and hate the other. There, there, there's no two ways about it. 
We can't serve both God and money. We can only fly one flag of allegiance. And what are we doing? How are we showing our allegiance to Jesus, especially in a hostile world where there's delegations of people going to try and keep this king from the throne? But it's not just being loyal. We're also called to be witnesses to the king. We're called to be a witness to the king. And what I mean here is when we're asked about our faith and what we believe and, and, and what we're trusting in, where our hope lies and why we have peace, what is the answer that we give? I mean, when, when you talk about this life, this gospel that has saved you, what do you mean by that? Do we, do we know what Jesus has done and the implications for our life because of the cross? Do we understand the obedience that it calls us to? The, the radical heart transformation of what we love, the things that we desire most, the things that we cling to, the things that we collect and that we want in our lives. Or like uh, Deuteronomy 6, do, do we talk about the gospel when we stand up and when we walk along the road, when we sit down, when we go to eat, when we go to sleep, when we wake up? Is the gospel seemingly tied to our mind and to our actions? That we've been renewed in our minds to live differently for Jesus. We're called to be a witness to the king. But we're also called to establish his kingdom. And this is a, a double thing. This is talking about the rule and the reign of God. And, and we're not trying to create a theonomy where you know, Canada just becomes this, this Christian nation. It would be amazing. It's never going to happen. But our lives, our hearts can be transformed. We can be sanctified as we apply the gospel to our lives, as we trust in the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. That is Philippians 2 talks about, that we would work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, that it's God who works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That, that we would look to do everything in our power to follow Jesus. And more than that, we would tell our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors about this Jesus who has saved us because it's not enough for it to be individual. The rule and the reign of God has to grow because if it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to us. C.J. Mahaney puts it this way. If there's anything in life, anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us and only the gospel ought to be it. What position does the gospel have in our lives? The passage continues with this interesting thing, though. It, it continues with this expectation that there would be a return, that, that God has left us with this, this mina, but that we would do something with it and that it would earn some kind of a return. And it's interesting because the passage doesn't seem to say that it's you know, hard work or, or more giftedness necessary that produces a return. It's faithfulness and trusting the gospel to do the work. This is what verse you know, 16 and 18 tells us. The first came to before him saying, Lord, your mina, your mina has made 10 minas. Like, 
It's not me. It's not what I've done. It's not all the good stuff that, that I have kind of done and being wise about. You're mean. The, the power of the gospel is the thing that has done this. I, I've just been faithful with it. Both of them put it that way. It's the power of the gospel, not the power of the person. And although we should expect a certain return, because it's out of our control, we, we trust that God is going to do what God wants to do. And when we do act faithfully, applying the gospel, loving it, loving Jesus, it's going to grow abundantly in our lives. Think of, of tree planting. I personally have never been tree planting because I'm a sissy. <laughs> but... I've been told by many people about tree planting. And the interesting thing is uh, they, they go out into the middle of nowhere and they're all given these sections of land and they're all given the same trees and a shovel and they're told, plant as many trees this far apart as you can and go. They're all given the same parameters and the same expectations. Make as much with what you have as you can. But we have choices, right? You can sleep in in the morning, you can take an early lunch. You can break early for some coffees. You don't have to work really hard. Yeah, what does it matter? I'm going to get paid in the end. But then you find people who are out there just working hard and working diligently, trying as hard as they can to get as many trees in the ground, knowing that there's a reward waiting for them. We should take this seriously because Jesus does talk about a reward. And the return we get becomes the reward, which is so interesting. These two servants were rewarded beyond the expectations of the initial investment, right? This initial investment of a of 100 days wages versus control over cities. I mean, you can't buy a house with the mina, but, but you're in control over the whole city. It, it blows me away just thinking about it. One commentator put it this way, the reward is astonishingly disproportionate to the disciples' efforts. It's the work of God. The question becomes then, do we take care to put the gospel to work so that we'll have more in eternity, right? This is the, the natural kind of itch that we might have. You know, if I, if I work hard now and do all these things, do, do I get a better experience of, of, of heaven? Do I get more personal fulfillment there? What, what happens? What is the reward that I'm working towards? Well, the answer is, well, no, the cities don't equate to us having things for our carnal pleasures like Islam or, or Mormonism, right? If I, if I do all these things, then I get this thing for my own fulfillment, my own enjoyment, my, my own little kingdom there. And, and no, it's not that if I work really hard and do a good job that God sees that and goes, I found a good worker, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you more work to do in eternity, so just keep going. <laughs> Looking forward to that. <laughs> the reward is greater responsibility Greater engagement with the king in eternity. Say that again. It's greater responsibility and greater engagement with the king in eternity. It's not more work or efforts, but more enjoyment of being one of the king's trusted advisors, companions. That we would more fully experience Jesus himself. See, relational intimacy and greater participation in the kingdom with God is why we should obey God and put it to work now. 
The two servants are anticipating the return of the king. They, they know that they have to give an account of the work when the master returns. And what they do is they show us that we will be rewarded by the master for what we have done with what he has deposited in us. Will we be faithful? Will we put the gospel to work in our own lives and in this world around us? So the question is, what have we done with what God has entrusted to us? How have we been witnesses for the king? How have we showed our allegiance and our love for the king? And how are we bringing his rule and his reign in our lives and those around us? Because there's another response that should, that should make us pause and question how we're doing. Look at verses 20 to 26 with me. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The second response that we see is the fearful response. See, instead of seeing Jesus as a good Lord and a good master, it's fear. This, this king, though, it's so strange. He's entrusted this mina to him. It doesn't seem like a severe thing. It seems like a, a responsibility, a, a way of, of showing that I'm thankful for what you've given me and that I'm going to work with it now. But his whole life is a, is a failure. He didn't invest or put the master's mina to work, go about business with it. And it's all a result of, of fear. Fear that Jesus is a severe man. Fear that Jesus, when he returned, would take all that the man had gained. Fear that Jesus would not pay him back for the work that he had done. What would that look like today? What would that look like in the church for a servant not to be about the business of the king? Well, I, th I think it's someone who's worried that the work isn't worth the reward that everything we do is, is meaningless, that it's all going to be for the king, we won't get any part of it, so why work towards anything? This is the Christian, I think, saying, I'm, I'm saved, I'll wait it out until Jesus returns or I die. I, I know the gospel, I have the gospel, I don't need anything more. And more than that, if I fail to live up to the expectations that Jesus gives me for evangelism or teaching or training or growth or sanctification, probably be in bigger troubles. It's better just to keep the gift of the gospel hidden, safe, so it won't get trampled or stolen or lost. This is the picture that Jesus gives us in, in Matthew 5 of, of the light being put under the, the, the bowl. I'm just so scared that it's, it's going to get wrecked, it's going to get ruined, that, that all the things that I want to do or all the things that I want to work on are going to come to nothing. But that's just one big 
One big lie. I mean, the, the, the beauty of what we see in this passage and the beauty of what we see in this, in this New Testament especially is that, is that it's better than that we, we just eke our way into the kingdom. It's that we get to share in the inheritance with Jesus himself. That everything that is his is ours. Which why wouldn't we want to make the kingdom bigger if we're the ones that get to enjoy it? If I get the share in the rewards of what I'm doing, why wouldn't I want to see that, that kingdom grow, that the people around me to know Jesus and love him so that I can be with them and enjoy them too for eternity? It's a big lie that we've been taught. Something is off in our belief about who Jesus is, what kind of king he is. This is our view of him. There's no way we can look at the Bible and see the gospel that Jesus himself has humbled himself from heaven and come to earth, taking on the form of man to live obediently, die on a cross for our sin, to make you and I who are enemies his friends. Does that sound like an evil king? No. This should scare us, though. And the passage, I've wrestled with this all week as I'm trying to, to preach it and, and give it to you. Because the, the, the parable of the talents is actually really clear. The servant who had five minas was faithful and was rewarded with five. The, the, the servant with three was faithful and rewarded with three. The, 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 faithful, or the servant with one was unfaithful. It was taken away from him and then he was, he was slaughtered. He was killed. But we don't have that same story here. It's, it's, it's different. The, the way the passage ends is... is is different. Yes, his, his mina is taken away. Verse 26 says, I, I tell you, everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Is this saying that the salvation will be taken away? That the, the good news will be taken back? That this person has no hope? Or, or maybe because this person never actually applied it, never really loved God, never really served God, that they were never saved in the first place. Or, like 1 Corinthians 3.15, is he like the one who will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire? Again, the way Jesus sets up this parable is that this servant is part of the church, part of the people he has left behind. This has great implications for what we do with the gospel, with how we live. Well, the passage, like I said, is, is strangely quiet about the end of this wicked servant. But we do learn something really important for us today. It's a couple things. First off is, is what lies have we been believing about Jesus? What, what things have we taken as truth that the Bible doesn't affirm or show? And the only way we can know that, guys, is if we're constantly looking at God's word. If we're, if we're constantly going and seeing Jesus for who he is and what he has done. The second thing, I think that the scary part is, is we're supposed to see that if, if we're not lovers of God, if, if we are not serving him and actively following him, it seems that we're dangerously close close to being an, an, an enemy. The call today is to stop living in fear of Jesus and serve him with the gospel that he's entrusted to us. 
Know the king, know his generosity, his grace, his love, and his forgiveness. And and maybe the reason that you're not faithfully following Jesus today is is not fear of Jesus, but fear of the the world who hates our king. That that you're scared of, of being out in front of them looking like a follower of Jesus. You're scared of the delegation that doesn't want the king and you don't want to be lumped in with him. Well, we need to stop living in fear of the world. We need to stop living in fear of Jesus because we see what the end is for those who are God's enemies. Read verse 27 with me. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The third response is the response of the foe, the enemy of God who hates him. The final response is those who who didn't want to see the nobleman become king. They've chosen to rebel, and it didn't have to be that way. Every single person in this room who is claiming to be a follower of Jesus is proof that it doesn't have to be that way. All of us at one point were enemies of the king, but by his grace, he saved us. The spirit regenerated our hearts and allowed us to see the beauty of the king. We're only here because of grace. Those enemies still exist today, but many, I think, exist as enemies of the cross out of confusion, out of lies, as Satan has blinded the hearts of this world to hate the king. And how in the world would any of these enemies of God come to know the truth unless his people go and tell them the good news? See, we know that when the staunchest of enemies has a personal experience with Jesus, their lives are changed. And the perfect example, obviously, is is Paul. Saul, this this man who wanted nothing more than to destroy the church, destroy their witness, throw them in jail, kill them, wipe out this this new group of people. He's on his way in Acts chapter 9 to go and visit Damascus, where he has letters to go and arrest people and bring them back to prison. And on the way, you know the story, the bright light shines. And a voice comes out and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I love the answer. Who are you, Lord? Saul doesn't know him. Saul doesn't know who this Jesus is. But a few days later, Ananias is sent to go to to Saul. And obviously, at first, he's a little, uh, got a little trepidation in him, knowing that this is the man who wants to, to put his people in prison. But he faithfully puts the gospel to work. He goes to Saul and he shares the gospel. And immediately, scales fall from his eyes. And he gets up, he eats, he's baptized, and this same Paul is able to plant churches across the known world, write most of the New Testament. The reward was great. It's a, it's a warning that our passage gives that there is an end for the enemies of God, but the Bible tells us there is hope for those enemies. That there is grace for those who are furthest from the king. But his people, you and I, have to go and declare who Jesus really is. 
If you're here today and you haven't put your your faith in Jesus, if you you don't know the king and why we're all praising and worshiping and celebrating him and giving our lives to him, come and talk to somebody. Come and pray with us. Talk with somebody you came with or who's around you. We, We want you to know the king. We want you to put him in your rightful place. That's the thing that you are most passionate about. For those of us who are the church, the question is, how do we view the king? For you here, do we view the king with love, with fear, or with hate? And how are we anticipating his return? My prayer for us is that we would be faithful servants. People who are, who are declaring our loyalty to Jesus alone. That, that, that we are on a mission, going and making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Would that be true of us? Would you pray with me to that end? Jesus, you, you are seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now and we have access to you by your Spirit And God, you speak a better word on our behalf than we deserve. We have not always been faithful with the gospel that you've entrusted to us. And yet, God, it is never too late to live obediently and to trust you while we still have breath. God, we pray that you would make your name great in our lives, in this church, and in this world. That, God, by the power of the gospel, you would be made great as we proclaim you and as we live for you, and as we're sanctified, God, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, do great things through us, in spite of us, because, God, your servants love you, because you have loved us. So we pray this all in your great name, Jesus. Amen.